Hey, Kenneth. Hey, Robin. How you doing? Doing pretty good. We have a good episode this week, don't we? Yeah, for sure. I'm so excited to have more North Carolina representation on the pod, both in terms of interviewers, you and me, but also in terms of guests, because today we have former Governor Pat McCrory on the pod. Yeah, he uh, was a great guest. Very Aww. candid conversation. Kenneth, uh, tell us a story about how we landed the interview. So I'm sitting in Leo's yesterday at 4 p.m. And I get a call from a random North Carolina number I did not have in my contacts. And I pick it up and I go, who is this? <laughs> and he goes, well, this is Pat McCrory. And I immediately pepped up. And he says, yeah, I'm calling to talk to you about your podcast. Got your number from your email. Uh, can you do it now? And I'm like, now? I said, yeah, head on downtown, meet up with me. If you guys can get to me by 6, we'll get your interview in. And so we did it. And we met up with him. And we had a great, candid interview with Governor Pat McCrory. For sure. One of the highlights of my personal student journalism career. We're so excited to uh, share this interview with you. Yeah. And I mean, look, Robin, he's been my mayor. He's been our governor. But now, on this week's episode, he gets the best title of all. <laughs> our guest. So without further ado, let's jump into the interview. We're sitting here with Governor McCrory uh, up in Washington, D.C. for our interview today. Thanks for coming. It's an with such honored students of a distinguished university in the United States of America. Well, yeah, thank you so much for sitting down and joining us, Governor. So I guess our first question was, you know, you started your career as an educator. You have a degree in education and political science. So we were curious as to how the pivot from education to public service looked like. And how did your career in education influence your outlook in politics? And, well, my goal was yeah. to be a teacher coming out of college, but I ended up working in a management trainee program with Duke Power Company. But ironically, I ended up being the director of training many years later for Duke. Um, but really what got me into politics is probably first my dad was a small town city council member in, in Worthington, Ohio. So that probably had an influence on me. Mm -hmm. I used to collect political posters in seventh, eighth grade. Who does that in seventh and eighth grade in the 1960s? So I had JFK and Goldwater and LBJ and Humphrey wow. posters. But, uh, and I was active in student government in both high school and college. So I always knew I wanted to get somehow involved. I just didn't know it was going to happen. And what encouraged it was actually I got laid off at Duke Power when I was recruitment manager. They ended up rehiring me two weeks later. But that layoff really had an impact on me because it showed me that I need to take control over my life mm -hmm. and do things I want to do as opposed to reacting to what others do. So that gave me the courage to run for the Charlotte City Council. And crime was real bad at that point in time, like it is now. And that was my major emphasis is dealing with crime. Yeah, for sure. So in your time on Charlotte City Council, what are you proudest of? What's your proudest achievement? Uh, first of all, dealing with crime. The murder rate was over 125 when I became mayor, and we reduced it to less than 40. And we did it through programs like Target 100, where we targeted the top 100 criminals in Charlotte. I had a no truancy program where I wouldn't let 14 and 15 year old kids or 10 and 11 year old kids roam the street late at night or during school hours. I had a tolerate no truancy program where if kids were wandering the malls during the day, I'd go, why the hell are you not in school? And what they were often doing is getting involved in um, 
minor criminal activity, which then graduated to more serious stuff. That's frankly the things we ought to be doing today is concentrating on those people that we arrest over and over again. And I'm very proud of uh, the transportation plan that I put together. Light rail, an outer beltway, uh, some of the development plans that are, uh, I think, having a huge impact on the city some 15 years later. For sure. Talking a little bit about the transit plan in Charlotte specifically, being from Charlotte, I'm actually really close to one of the light rail stops. Mm -hmm but we really only got the blue line. We really got just one line. What do you think of the current transit plan? Where do you think it's going? Uh, the current plan, they need to sell it more to the public. They seem to be taking it for granted that the public understands it. And one thing I learned in selling the light rail plane plan, um, plan was to, you have to constantly market it and explain it and show the 50 year vision on what the city will look like with the plan and what the city will look like without the plan. I'm not seeing that done today. The thing I'm proudest about the blue line, which used to only be the south line, but now it goes all the way through UNC Charlotte. And that was my dream was to get a light rail through the campus was to um, also have a path. And that south end path, I kind of snuck in without anyone knowing. I took a little bit of art money, if I recall, <laughs> and uh, slid it into this walkway and every time I cross it, I see people your age in the hundreds walking up and down this path it's in great between path. each line. So I'm very proud of that path. But I was scared to death. It wasn't good politically for me. Uh, the conservatives called it the McCrory line, not as a compliment. It's now working, and they call it the, uh, the blue line. <laughs> so my name's been removed. Yeah. Thinking about your tenure as mayor of Charlotte, notable that you were a Republican mayor of a Democratic stronghold in North Carolina. So how was it like crossing the aisle to work or really governing a city like Charlotte? I didn't really think of it that way, although I, mm -hmm. I was very conservative. Uh, I had some conservatives call me a rhino then because I did the light rail line, but I did it through a referendum mm -hmm. at passed twice, uh, which I think is the conservative thing to do. And I fought crime. I reduced crime hard, and I reduced the income, uh, the uh, property tax rate. Never increased taxes unless I got permission from the public, and that was half cent sales tax, <clears throat> and a rental car tax for a um, some of the new hotels and other things, the, the arena that we built, which was very controversial at the time. But um, you know, it was just a matter of using common sense. I haven't changed since then. It was kind of ironic when I became governor. The left called me a right-wing extremist. And then when I ran for Senate, the right calls me a liberal rhino. So these, these branding is ruining politics because it's not letting us breathe and do what we think is right, not just for today, but for the next generation, because this branding's being used as a weapon uh, to win primaries. And I think it's very dangerous to our political system. You know. All of a sudden, you're an extremist, or you're a radical, or you're a, uh, a rhino, or a MAGA, or a whatever the term by the left and right is. No one knows what it means, but it sticks. And uh, that's been done to me from both the left and the right in my political career. Uh, and it's it's been very effective, and I haven't been effective in fighting that. But uh, so be it. So to stay on that topic for a minute about the toxicity of primaries, mm -hmm. how do you feel about proposed reforms to them like ranked choice voting and jungle primaries that we're seeing in Alaska? I'm not a big fan of it. I think it's very confusing. Let's just, let's keep it simple. Mm -hmm. I understand the logic, but you know, uh, the voting one-on-one, -on -one, 
it's worked for a long time. We have the best system. There's some faults in the system, but I see what's going on in Alaska. People are totally confused. They have no idea. And, and people are trying to manipulate the choice voting, too. They might vote for one but not the other and see if that works for them. Right. It's kind of like guessing on the SAT exam, mm-hmm. which I had to do often. Yeah. <laughs> oh, don't miss the SAT. I guess looking at your career, jumping from mayor to governor, how did those experiences in Charlotte really inform uh, your approach to the governorship? Oh, it had a tremendous impact. In fact, I think there are too many people who are jumping straight to D.C., in politics today, young and old, with no experience at the local level or the state legislative level. And um, the level of dealing, I had to deal with the hurricanes when I was mayor and and riots and uh, floods and snowstorms and murders and funerals. And that helped me a lot as governor because I had to deal with the shootings as governor. I had to deal with a major hurricane as governor. And I had to deal with... Um, having a vision for the next 25 years as governor. So I stole a lot of what I did as mayor and applied it to Raleigh. Now, Raleigh fought me, both Republicans and Democrats, because they tend to think more short-sighted because mm-hmm. the elections are every two years and they're more worried about power. That was my biggest challenge in Raleigh was the main emphasis seemed to be who has the power, not what we can accomplish. And that was a kind of naive on my part to walk into that type of environment. Now I had a team uh, of cabinet members that were very idealistic and very pragmatic in a way. They wanted to get things done and get them done now. We were more, I was a change agent governor and change agents sometimes get defeated. I changed the transport, took the politics out of transportation, very similar to what I did in Charlotte. I I completely revised uh, the health and human services because I inherited a $2.3 billion deficit but I stepped on a lot of toes doing it. I even fought my own Republican legislature on a separation of powers issue. And they never forgave me for it because they were interested in power regardless of what the Constitution says. I was interested in the future ability of future governors after me to be able to change things and do things. And um, so I stepped on some toes of the bureaucracy. One of the proudest things I did, which I took as being mayor, I... um, created historical tax districts so a lot of the old mill buildings in small towns wouldn't be torn down and now when i go back and see all those uh, old mill buildings being redeveloped in cities like graham and mebane and and tryon and other cities i'm very very proud of that and i think your generation will benefit that those buildings weren't torn down and some of these small cities from kinston to mount airy to silva um, are now ashboro are doing great because we didn't tear down these old buildings like Charlotte used to do. Well, I know in Charlotte we've got Optimist Hall up there now in, in a building like that, but mm-hmm. I can't think of too much else. No, we. Before I got there, Charlotte basically got a bulldozer, lost some unique characteristics, and the small towns can't afford to do that because mm-hmm. the small towns are often losing population, and the small town itself is like the living room of that area. Mm-hmm. But if the living room looks abandoned. Right. People aren't going to move there. It's true. We'll come back to your tenure as governor in a second. I wanted to move back to talking about Charlotte because I had a question for you. Charlotte's one of the fastest growing cities in the nation. Mm-hmm. Do you think they're doing anything wrong right now in supporting that growth? Yeah, they're not showing what the vision is for what they want the city to look like in 2050, right. 2075. 
Right. Because we know the growth is coming. So what does the region, what do you want it to look like? You got to almost show a picture. Then you got to provide what the cost is going to be and you got to sell it. And the other thing, I'm very disappointed in public safety, which got me into public service. Um, have the homeless lay around and which is enabling that type of behavior. Most of them have mental health issues, not all of them. And a lot of them are, have addiction issues. The liberals tend to think, well, if you let them have a tent like they do here in Washington, you're doing them a favor. No, you're not. You're enabling that type of behavior, not fixing that type of behavior, making them a long-term part of society. You can't live in a tent on a sidewalk and be a long-term part of our society. Plus, it impacts the quality of life for everyone else, which makes them then move or have to close down their business. And I'm seeing Charlotte make the same mistakes of other urban centers that um, I was very tough. Uh, I mean, I, our crime was so bad. Um, you know, downtown Charlotte was like a ghost town after five o'clock. And I said, I'm going to revive that. First thing I did was upset my transportation people by allowing on-street parking. They went, you can't do that. You're going to impact the bus flow. And I said, I don't care. It's a ghost town. You had to show people were there. So little things like that made a difference. And, um, but I, w I had a no, um, uh, I wouldn't allow the homeless to panhandle. I had a no panhandling uh, law that I passed. I wouldn't let them sleep on park benches. Not because I don't want to help them, but because them sleeping there enables that type of behavior. And uh, I didn't want people to give money to them. I wanted to have them give money to the homeless shelter who can deal with their addiction and help them get a job and help them get a roof in their head. So that was quite controversial to my liberals at that time. So I've, um, I've had both liberals and conservatives get very upset with me. And that continues today. And I don't care. Um, my goal is to make a difference for the, your generation and your kids. So talking about the, the tents specifically for a second, this yeah. is kind of a specific thing, but there's a lot of local controversy about the dispersion of Tent City near Church Street a few yeah. years ago. How would you go about addressing that? Well, they should have never let it happen. I mean, they started tearing it down and, you know, thousands of rats came out. Well, how'd you like to be a landowner or a business right next to that? You're just killing the goose that lays the eggs by not thinking long term. And they let that happen far too long, just like Washington, D.C. has done the same thing. When I see tent cities in our, in our nation's capital, near Union Square, they're not doing these people any favors. They're not solving the problems. That's a liberalism that I disagree with. And that's why San Francisco is such a mess today, and so is L.A. I started seeing it happen in San Francisco 25 to 30 years ago. And that had an impact on me as mayor. But also mental health has an impact on me as governor. That was the first thing I mentioned was mental health in addition in my state of the state speech. And it's like no one even applauded. But now we're seeing long-term impact on our society. So I'll give you one more question about Charlotte before moving back to your tenure as governor. David Tepper has invested a lot in the city mm -hmm. uh, as of now. And there's been some controversy I've heard in terms of how he's gone about his building projects and what his ownership of the Panthers means. Do you have any opinions on that topic? One of the traditions of Charlotte is we welcome you with open arms if you come from someplace else. In fact, we're not a closed city. You don't have to be a member of certain generational lines. You can be of any color, any income. You can be anybody. 
anybody of any faith, and we welcome you to the city, but you've got to commit to it. It's got to come from the soul and the heart. And uh, Mr. Tepper has yet to show that. And people feel that. Now, he may change. We've had this problem with other sports owners. I've had the I've had to deal with the NBA and the NFL and every other sports thing. And after dealing with them, sometimes you have to take a shower. <laughs> um, but um, I think it's important for any business leader, including sports, because it is a business, to actively get involved in the community. And that doesn't mean just writing checks. That means getting involved and showing you care. So um, I think he's got room to do that. It's nice to have his investment. Mm -hmm. I just want to see the commitment. Yeah, I guess we can move back to the conversation in your tenure as governor. My first question on that will be about the Duke Energy coal ash incident. Yeah. I just wanted to hear a little bit more from your perspective, especially given your past history with Duke Energy, how you navigated that issue, you know, being governor in that. In well, that, that happened, I think, in my third or fourth, fifth month in office. Mm -hmm. I didn't even know what coal ash was. <laughs> um, I was not that part of the company. And when it happened, I thought my team did great, but the left started mm -hmm. using that as a political weapon against me, and they used it all the way up until they probably ran 10 to $15 million of ads against me. Pat McCrory has coal ash on his hands, and it was total crap because I actually, we actually fined Duke Power, the largest fine in mm -hmm. North Carolina history, um, and I was fighting with Duke Power the whole time, my mm -hmm. old company. But uh, the left and even some of my Republicans tried to use that to weaken my power. Mm -hmm. But I think we are a role model on how to deal with an environmental uh, issue. And my worry in the future is the next coal ash is going to be batteries. Where are we going to store all these and bury all these batteries in the future? And no one's talking about the environmental impact of that. Very similar to transforms 50 years ago. Transforms that you see on the side of poles that are a major part of our electrical distribution system. You know, at the time transformers were built, no one said, well, we'll worry about that later. Mm -hmm. And I think our nation's also got to be worried about the, dis, uh, the how do you get rid of solar panels? They have a lifespan at this point, maybe of 10 years. They've got some very tough chemicals in them. And the environmentalists and those experts in energy just don't want to talk about that. But 10 years comes up very quickly. And you don't want um, for what was once farmland or woods with broken and uh, contaminated solar panels down the road. And we gotta, we gotta confront these issues. Absolutely. Coming into office, you were preceded by Governor Bev Perdue and after Roy Cooper. Mm -hmm. Did you ever talk to Bev Perdue during your tenure? A couple of times, and we still do. Uh, some of the former governors, I've yet to talk to Roy Cooper. He's never called me. <clears throat> but I have a great deal of respect for, uh, I've, I've met with Jim Hunt, Jim Martin, I talked to a lot. Bev Perdue and Mike Easley. In fact, we joined in a, uh, a brief fighting some separation of power issues that was going on in the Supreme Court. So I have a great deal of respect for um, my predecessors, but uh, Governor Cooper's never reached out to me and uh, I'd be glad to help him, give him advice, but uh, I don't think it's coming. Yeah, because I, I was interested seeing as on the outside, to a, an average political observer, yeah. it seems to be very, very bitter. But it, it, not even bitter, it's just, there doesn't seem to be much working together across the aisle. Um, no, it's, uh, it's very, I would agree with that in North Carolina politics, very similar to Washington politics at this point in time. Ironically, when I was in office, many of my fights were with my own Republicans and they weren't over issues. Mm -hmm. It was about power. Right. You know, it goes all the way back to our faith. You know, it's a great 
it's power and greed. Uh, it happens in politics too, and it's a sad commentary. Do you see a future in North Carolina politics that is less polarized? I'm oh, there'll always be a future. Our nation and our state <clears throat> are going through phases of this, but in my age group, I've seen a lot worse. In the mid-60s, um, 67, 68, 69, I mean, we call protest a tearing down, tearing down statues, which is bad, a riot. That ain't a riot. I mean, a riot, 68 Watts mm -hmm. or 68, 69 Detroit or Kent State in 72, you know, where students are getting killed by the National Guard. Those, those are riots. Um, and now we're, you know, sadly, we're having elected officials attacked. I've been attacked. Uh, I hated to see Nancy Pelosi's husband attacked. Um, and it, it's happened to me in Charlotte as an ex-official. My car was attacked with me in the car. And someone said, oh, that's Pat McCrory, you mother. And next thing I know, my car is being damaged over $2,000 worth. And I didn't, I, I was nervous. And I've been attacked in Washington, D.C., chased down the street by 20, 30 people and into a corner. And it's very nerve wracking on me and my family. But compared to... <clears throat> 63 when President Kennedy was killed, or 68 when Robert F. Kennedy's brother was killed, or 68 when Martin Luther King was killed. Uh, we aren't to that degree yet, but we could be. And this, this, uh, we haven't, we, we're having a type of anarchy that's being developed in our country where everyone's mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. Famous movie called Network said that long before you were born. And this mad as hell, we can't, we're not going to take it anymore mentality is turning this anger is turning into actual action, as we saw in the riots in Portland and Seattle and the killings in Chicago and the January 6th uh, riot. There's no excuse for violence. I have no excuse for violence unless it's to protect your family, to protect our country based upon what the Constitution says. And that's it. Yeah. That's it. Protect your property. But anyone who uses violence, you, you can't give them an excuse all the way from domestic violence to violence against our uh, elected officials. Yeah, so just to follow up on that, I guess you saw, as you said, a much more turbulent period in American history and, you know, people are nervous about the political climate now. How do you think we can turn down the temperature? You know, the first people have got to turn it down are our leaders and both Republicans and Democrats. When we have Trump using the rhetoric he did on January 6th and other types of rhetoric, that... <clears throat> I know it for a fact because I've had people angry at me and yell at me with their veins sticking out. And I've got to be careful how I respond because I can escalate it being a governor or a mayor and now a person in media. We're abusing the pulpit. Schumer goes on the steps of uh, the Supreme Court and says, we're looking, we're watching you, Mr. Cor uh, Mr. Kavanaugh. Um, I was still Reagan's speech there at the <laughs> Gorbachev. Uh, uh, you can't have that. We're acting like it's a junior high cafeteria. And this isn't a junior high cafeteria. The only thing that separates us from violence is a piece of paper called our Constitution. That's it. A little flimsy piece of paper that's behind a glass is our Constitution. And if you want to go around the Constitution, that means you're going to be get violent. And people say it so cavalry. I mean, just, oh, We'll just do this. I don't care whether the Constitution says it or not. That's not the way it works. And this new country we call the United States of America, which is an experiment, 
We've got to tell your generation, respect the Constitution. So if the Supreme Court rules against us, say, okay, the Supreme Court ruled against us. You don't go burn down the Supreme Court. We have three branches of government. You work through the system, regardless of how it falls. I've had the Supreme Court rule on things that I strongly disagreed with. I've had governors that I've strongly disagreed with and mayors. It's the system you work through. And if you want to do anything else but the system, I, I would consider you to be a, um, an anarchist. Because an anarchist doesn't respect institutions, including government or religion or, or business. They just want to destroy it. And then they have nothing left. And I see this on the colleges and universities too. They, they protest everything. And I always go, what the hell's your alternative? They're just, they're yelling. <laughs> it's a very immature, it's, it's a sign of immaturity and I think a lack of understanding of our civics and the people who fought for our constitution. Going off of that, obviously you've been in some very contentious races mm -hmm. yourself as you've talked about, one of which being the 2022 Senate primary. Oh, you had to remind me of that. <laughs> I apologize, but no, it's what okay. would we be if we didn't ask, right? I mean, just walk us through the 2022 primary on your side. What it was, was a like? tough decision for me to get into it, but I felt I was the most qualified. Right. I felt I had a record of success, and I felt like we didn't have enough people in D.C. with local and state experience and business experience. But um, when Donald Trump stood on stage in Greenville in May or June of 2021 and, and said, I'm endorsing Ted Budd because Pat McCrory is a loser and he... Um, and he doesn't represent our values. My life changed at that moment. And I didn't know it. I was insulted. I was disrespected. I wish I would have stood up and said, you're right, I don't represent your values. But I didn't because that's not the decorum that I agree with. And um, we were 30 points ahead at that time in the polls. But then a group from outside spent another 12 to $15 million against me in ads that were totally false. But I accept the results. I don't like that direction of my party. And I agree with Trump's policies, except for his spending. He was too liberal. Uh, I'm more conservative than Donald Trump. He's not really conservative. Biden's become much more liberal than he used to be. Can't figure that one out either. He was actually conservative on crime in the 80s. He voted for a lot of the policies that I wanted as a mayor. And he didn't completely turn around. So I guess my my answer to all of you, I think both of you would agree, we can do better as leaders of our nation, regardless of your philosophy. And I'm a conservative. I, I respect the Constitution. I believe in limited government. I believe in fiscal responsibility. I believe in common sense. And I think my record shows that. I'm with you because I feel like regardless of where you stand politically, I mean, even members of our podcast go all across the spectrum, mm -hmm. uh, but it's about acting in good faith yeah. Uh, and acting in the best interest of the people around us. And the shouting of each other and canceling each other, which we see on your college campuses. That, that, that's ridiculous. The, you, you just told me Pence was on your, and people walked yeah. out. Why don't they want to listen? God gave them two years. And they're paying a hell of a lot of money to go to Georgetown. Yep. And they don't even want to yeah. learn they're not willing to hear someone they disagree with? I don't think those people should, they obviously don't have the maturity to go to Georgetown. How the hell did they get into Georgetown 
if the people in the applic in the in the process of accepting, they should first ask them, are you willing to hear people with other ideas or not? There, there's, I don't like people who are closed-minded or not willing to learn and still disagree. I make a point to listen to people I disagree with. I get bored being in rooms with people I agree with. They're not teaching me anything. I want to hear the counter-argument. And maybe you two can tell people this on the left or the right on your campus, which is mainly left at your age. You know, if you're, as Winston Churchill said, if you're not a liberal in 18, you have no heart. <laughs> but if you're not 30 and conservative, you have no brain. Uh, but the worst thing to have no brain is if you're not willing to listen and learn. That's intolerance. <laughs> and I'm shocked by how many other students put up with the crap. Mm -hmm. Other than that, I really don't have an opinion on it. <laughs> Sticking on the 2022 race for a minute, yeah. um, as of the time we're recording this, it's right before Election Day, about a week. About a week, um, yeah. I'm not sure when this will officially air, but where do you feel like the race is going in North Carolina? It's going to be very tight, but I anticipate um, the Republicans being very strong just mm -hmm. because of the economy. People vote on the pocketbook, always have, always will. And if you have inflation like we have, most people live um, under the age of 60 have not seen inflation in their lifetime. I did. Um, I remember inflation well when I was in junior high and high school. And um, I saw a president go down because of it, Nixon. They all say he went down because of Watergate. Hell no, it was inflation. And it, him and, I mean, it, there's no easy answer to inflation. Mm -hmm. But um, people are reminded of every day at the supermarket or at the restaurant yeah. or as a college student yeah, paying sure. <laughs> higher interest for your debt that you don't want to go listen to someone. <laughs> yeah. By the way, no course should ever be canceled either because of uh, an event or January the 6th. You're paying for that. I'd ask for a refund. <laughs> yeah, going off of NC going red this fall, you know, North Carolina is, you know, still very split and very purple and yeah. every race it seems to be on the old biters. That's because so. independents now are 35% of the Yeah. Vote. What strategies do you see for the Republican Party in keeping North Carolina consistently red for future elections? I think North Carolina is going to be purple for a while, mm -hmm. but it could go more blue long term because the urban areas, uh, primarily Raleigh, Durham and Charlotte, are being, you know, everyone from the liberal areas are moving. Man, we love this state. It's low taxes, good quality of life, low crime. And damn if they don't still vote liberal. <laughs> um, I still don't understand that. But uh, the, the voting dynamics are changing dramatically. Mm -hmm. I'll be the last Republican mayor of Charlotte. It's, I hate that. We used to be a very diverse political city. We, you know, I'd be the Republican mayor. There'd be six Democrats, five Republicans, or vice versa. Change every two years. It forced us to work together. Now it's all Democrat in Charlotte. I think we have two Republicans out of three political bodies. And uh, Republicans have given up. Cardian Driggs on city council, I know. That's it. And it means nothing. They have no power. And um, when one party's in total uh, control, one thing that will happen is corruption. It's Our history books tell us, either party. They get cocky, they get arrogant, they want power, and power then brings them money. Because they're making some very important decisions. And people start knowing, you know, we had Pat Cannon, uh, as mayor, who I knew very well, my brother was his big brother growing up, 
for him to take money and us to allow that environment is inexcusable. It, it broke my heart, broke my heart knowing someone took $25,000 in my old mayor's office because we never even considered that. So uh, that really is a stain on our Charlotte history and sustain on all the mayors. I, I take it personally. Yeah. Moving back a little bit to your tenure as governor, mm-hmm. and I, had, I had two, two big sure. questions here. One of which is, and this, this also deals with the years after your time as governor's mansion, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of holdovers and struggles in Cooper's administration with the um, Medicaid expansion and budgeting. Mm-hmm. How do you think that should have been addressed? <laughs> Well, I actually met with President Obama to talk about Medicaid expansion when I was governor. Went to the Oval Office, and he and I got in a little argument, but a respectful argument. Mm-hmm. Then the president ended the argument and said, that's enough. And I respectfully, we, we respectfully disagreed, shook hands, and I wanted some waivers. And he, I gave him the logic like I did in housing when I was mayor. And But when I got home, my Republicans ridiculed me. How dare you even consider this? I've just seen how far we could get. And now my Republicans are all of a sudden doing it, and they're the same ones who called me a rhino. So you never know the rules of politics. I, I'm still concerned about it, though. The The federal government's just expanding so much. We're becoming a nanny state. And sooner or later, your generation's not going to be affording all this stuff. And I liked it when business took care of your insurance. And now business is bailing from the insurance and you're all going to be individual contractors. Uh, You're going to be asking for handouts and it's more of a European system. There's a pro and con to that, but I don't think we're discussing the long-term implications, especially consider the unfunded liabilities of our financial system right now. Sticking on the subject of Medicaid expansion Mm -hmm. for a second, I think the argument is often made that we're already paying that money into the system but without expanding Medicaid in the state, we're not getting that money back. Well, it's all debt. It's still all debt. You're right. Other states are using it, increasing our debt. Why aren't we going ahead and go increase the debt? By the way, the state share is going to be much more than you anticipate. It's grown much more in every state. That's a fair argument. Since everyone else is stealing from the bank, why aren't we stealing from the bank? It's part of the problem we have in our nation right now. And then my second question, yeah. even with your tenure as governor, is that there was... Go ahead. A lot of very, a lot of very. Don't hold back. I know what you're getting to. <laughs> well, two things specifically. Yeah. Oh. I think you'll like to talk about one of them a little bit more. My two things, two controversies: I seventy seven tolling, yeah, and HB two. Yeah. Would you do anything differently in regards to no? I communicate better, but you know, usually in politics, it's not the policy; it's the failure to communicate. I got my ass kicked in communication. No, the toll lane, we're not getting any complaints on it now. But that's what the, I followed the law. I didn't make that decision on toll lanes. The region made that decision, including the city of Charlotte, which kept their mouth shut while they were all Democrats wanting me to be defeated. So they didn't mind Roy Cooper saying he would eliminate the toll lane, which was a total lie. But, you know, you, sometimes you have to make the short-term sacrifice. We did a lousy job on communicating it, but... Um, I believe in bringing government closest to the people and the government, local governments made decision on how they wanted their state funds to be used. They asked for the toll lane. I gave it to them and they got three additional roads or two additional roads as a result and 10 years speed up of that construction. Uh, The the HB2, which most people call the bathroom law, which is kind of ridiculous because it was actually a law about minimum wage and several other things. But I predicted gender identity 
and gender expression would be controversies in prisons and in women's sports and other areas in the future. And it's exactly what I predicted. And no one wanted to have a mature conversation on it then. And ironically, everyone's afraid to talk about it now, even business. Business is no longer boycotting states. That agreed with my uh, viewpoint that maybe we ought to have biology determine gender. Um, that's the way I think about women's sports should be. That's the way I think women's locker rooms. I see the swimmer, the women's swimming team having to change clothes with a, a man and uh, who believes he's a woman. I respect that, but I, I prefer he changes clothes elsewhere and play maybe in another type of uh, activity that doesn't make the level playing ground fair. I was saying this uh, five, six years ago in a respectful way. I've never been derogatory toward people that have a gender issue or sexual orientation issue. Never. You'll never see me quoted that way, but the liberal media gave that impression. I don't believe in the term, I don't use the term LGBTQ either because it confuses sexual orientation with uh, gender identity. And there are two different issues. They have no relationship to each other. You know, you can have a gender identity issue and have sexual orientations totally different. That's never discussed. So that's kind of a political term used for lobbying, an acronym that no one will say what the acronym is. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? We have an acronym on college campuses that no one will repeat because you almost feel politically incorrect repeating the acronym that everyone's using. It's kind of a game. But you'll never hear me say disparaging remarks against people who have a different sexual orientation than me or believe in gender identity and gender expression. I get it. I understand it. It's worth a mature discussion in our country. And right now we have yet to have that mature discussion. At least the cancel culture is no longer doing what they did to me and to my state, mm -hmm. which was uncalled for. By the way, that was coordinated by the Democratic Governor Association and Governor Cuomo, of all things, who got canceled later on through sexual activity of, or at least accusations, therefore, how ironic things come around. Mm -hmm. Politics is a hardball, man. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, we're almost out of time in our interview. I know there's one more question okay. Kenneth wants to ask you um, before we go into our lightning round, so take it away. Okay. Well, to put it bluntly, what does the future hold for Pat McCrory? I don't know yet. I had to take about four months off. I've been mm -hmm. swimming every day in Lake Jimmy, as I call yeah. it. I'm, I'm, I just signed up to be an NBC news analyst and contributor, which I'm doing tonight mm -hmm. with Meet the Press. And, and uh, I'm going to continue to do a little radio. I might go on some speaking. I'd like to go back to business, too. Mm -hmm. uh, some people would still like me to just stay the heck. I got a note the other day, just shut up and go away. No, I have my First Amendment rights, whether I won or lost. And I'm going to continue those First Amendment rights, but I'll always do it in a respectful way always in a respectful way uh, representing our, the type of dialogue we as a nation ought to have. Mm -hmm. Okay, lightning round. So, the rule of lightning round is pretty self-explanatory, but we ask you three quick, easy answer questions to get them out. So, first one, Western or Eastern Carolina barbecue? Oh, I like ketchup base. 
Mm-hmm. Probably more Western. Mm-hmm. I, I like Eastern, but uh, riding down the road four hours afterwards, the hot, I cannot do hot peppers. Mm-hmm. You can tell I'm not running again. My favorite <laughs> Lexington-style barbecue, Speedy Lures. Oh, I love Speedy's. Oh, I used to eat at Speedy's where I refereed mm-hmm. basketball. That is the place. We'd, whoever called the first foul would have to buy a barbecue sandwich at Speedy's. Mm-hmm. I love it. They're going to move it, I hear. I just got worried. Really? They're going to tear it down and move it somewhere else. Yeah. Everybody says Speedy's. Lexington barbecue all the time. I had to Speedies. drive in at Speedy's all the time to drop their window. The place. Love it. Secondly, what's your golf handicap? I know you're a big golfer. My swing. Mm. Um, <laughs> I don't It's probably around 15 or 16 now. Okay. I'm not playing as much as I used to during COVID. For sure. I enjoy the camaraderie. My lip wedge is my best club. <laughs> First right. tee lip wedge. <laughs> Last question. Any predictions for the Panthers this season? Oh, God, the game last week. <laughs> oh. uh, you know, what's funny. The older I get, the less I get in. I root for individual players mm-hmm. and teams that I like the style of play. I've kind of gone away from the jersey. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's what we all think about in politics, mm-hmm. too, is get away from the jersey and pick the issues that we agree on and disagree on. And maybe we're agree or disagree on other issues too. And sometimes I'm rooting for Carolina. Sometimes I'm rooting for state. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'm rooting for the Panthers or Green Bay. It really depends upon which players and teams I enjoy to watch that year. And now with the way sports are, especially in college, the players are changing every minute anyway, compared to my generation where you got to know them. Mm-hmm. So the jersey doesn't matter as much to me anymore. I'm a little jaded, too, because I know how all these teams work regarding public financing. I've had to fight a lot of these owners in a respectful way, but Mm -hmm. that's that's for a book in the down the road. (laughs) Wow, very allegorical answers. Al Gore? No, not Al Gore. Al Gore. The sun is here, and the earth is here. The rays come down. See, I can do an Al Gore. Well, thank you hey, so much. Thanks. Yeah. Y'all have a great, great senior year, great freshman year. Uh, you're the type of people we need. Absolutely. Thank you so much for taking us. Take us. care now. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Fly on the Wall. You can find us on social media by searching at Fly on the Wall Pod. Inquiries may be sent to our email address, flyonthewall at georgetown.edu. If you enjoyed our conversation, be sure to subscribe to Fly on the Wall, a geopolitics podcast, and leave a five-star rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or SoundCloud. The Fly's researchers are Kelvin Doe, Robin Huang, and Zan Hock. Our communications team is Andrea Smith and Fiona Gallagher. Our producer is the mighty Max Paley. Original theme music is composed by Aidan Ang and Bella Carlucci. I'm Sam Kehoe, Managing Director of the Pod. Fly on the Wall is brought to you by the Georgetown University Institute of Politics and Public Service and is made possible by the McCord School of Public Policy. Thanks for listening and fly with you soon.